This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello and welcome. I'm Wynn Burkle. Uh, I'm Vice President for External Relations at the Rand Corporations and at the, at the Corporation, and at the moment, I'm also the Acting Director of Congressional Relations there. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this RAND briefing on reauthorizing ESEA, Congress' role in improving assessments, accountability, and teaching effectiveness. We're asking the question today, uh, will 2015 be the year Congress is finally able to reauthorize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act? We hope so. Uh, debate, d- debate continues over some of the law's key components, though, as you all know, including the appropriate federal role in mandating annual assessments, leveraging state accountability, and maximizing teaching effectiveness. Research from the RAND Corporation, as well as others in the education field, which we'll also uh, speak about today, can help answer the difficult questions confronting uh, federal policymakers as you work to reauthorize ESAA, which some of you may know as No Child Left Behind. Uh, So among the things that uh, we're hoping to cover today, the panel, is uh, how to balance the burdens of testing with the benefits of measuring student learning, the limitations of the current accountability policies and how a reauthorized ESCA can promote effective policies, and how to measure and promote high-quality teaching and support school improvement. Uh, A word about our panelists, and then I'll turn it over to them. Uh, Nearest to me, Brian Stetcher is a senior social scientist and associate director of RAND Education. Uh, Stetcher focuses on measuring educational quality and evaluating education reforms with a particular emphasis on assessment and accountability systems. He's directed prominent national and state evaluations of No Child Left Behind, mathematics and science of systemic reforms, and class size reduction. Sitting next to him, Laura Hamilton is a senior behavioral scientist and an associate director as well of RAND Education. Hamilton's research addresses educational assessment, uh, accountability, the measurement and evaluation of instruction and school leadership, the use of data for instructional decision making. She serves on several state and national panels on topics related to assessment, accountability, educator evaluation, and data use, and recently was a chair of a What Works Clearinghouse panel on data-driven decision-making. And lastly, uh, on your far right, John Engberg is a senior economist at RAND. Uh, John's work examines teacher and school performance and the workings of teacher labor markets. He's directed local, state, and national evaluations, uh, implementing advanced statistical methods to distinguish policy and program impact from confounding factors. His work has been supported by National Science Foundation, U.S. Department of Education's Institute for Education Sciences, National Institutes of Health, as well as several private foundations, and published in leading economics, policy, and education journals. And with that, let me turn it over to Brian. Kick it off. Thanks. Great, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to be talking about the assessments in our title and then brief, uh, fairly briefly, then I'll turn it over to Laura Hamilton who will talk about accountability and John Engberg will talk a little bit about teaching effectiveness. Um, as you're probably aware, assessments have been a big element, a big part of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act since its inception uh, in many, many years ago in the 60s. Um, in fact, The bill that Senator Alexander has floated on the Hill offers uh, two options for testing. One is keep things the way they are currently, which is every child takes tests in reading and math. 
in grades three through eight and one high school grade every year, or delegate responsibility completely to the states. And uh, people are lining up in support of one or the other of those two options. What the main point I want to make today here during my talk is that's not the right way to think about this. You should begin by thinking about what are the purposes of the information that you're going to be gathering, and then design the testing system to support those purposes. And I'll illustrate this with a couple of examples. Let's begin with um, No Child Left Behind. Uh, when the framers of this legislation got together to think about the last reauthorization of ESEA, they agreed on a set of goals, so what they wanted to accomplish. Um, one thing was providing parents with comparable evidence about the performance of their students on a regular basis. Another was to produce information that could be judged it could be used to judge the quality of every individual school in the country. A third purpose was to inform the option that, that was being offered to parents to choose whether to move their school from, with their children from one school to another. They also wanted a system that would um, give them a basis for triggering interventions in low-performing schools to try to turn them around. Um, Recently, under the provisions of the waivers, we've added some additional purposes, um, being able to judge the performance of each teacher. Um, and uh, all along, it was hoped that the information would be useful to improve performance locally. So with that set of purposes in mind, then you need a testing system that has a certain set of features. You need to be able to test um, every district every school and every student if you're going to provide the information that I just described. Um, now, No Child Left Behind offered a certain compromise because uh, there are difficulties in testing the youngest children. There are difficulties in testing kids in high school because they take different courses. So the framers of the legislation settled on grades three through eight and one high school grade. But the notion was in order to do what NCLB hoped to do, you needed annual tests of students. You also need uh, uh, testing annually if you're going to monitor the progress of individuals over time. And some states are now thinking about accountability systems that are based on student growth. And if you're going to measure student growth, then you need to test annually as well. Um, it's important to test all subjects that we value. And here again, No Child Left Behind struck a compromise requiring tests in reading and mathematics because the burden of testing in all the other important subjects was deemed to be too great. Um, and these rules were designed to provide data um, that would essentially support all the uses to which the law was uh, for which the law was written. Now let's take a counterexample. If you think about the National Assessment of Educational Progress, our nation's report card, its main purposes are to allow Congress to monitor how well the country is doing um, and, uh, over time and in important subject areas, and to identify any gaps in performance between important population uh, groups, racial ethnic groups. With those purposes in mind, then you can design a testing system very differently. Uh, NAEP, uh, for example, 
does not test in every school, in every district, or even in every state. It uses a sample drawn nationally to reflect the country as a whole. Um, furthermore, uh, it doesn't test every student in a school or every grade level. Once again, you can use uh, a portion of the population, if you sample them scientifically, to provide valid evidence for the country as a whole. Uh, NAEP administers tests every other year, not every year. And um, it tests in a large variety of subjects. In addition to reading and math, NAEP has uh, assessed students in science, writing, history, civics, geography, and other subjects over time, rotating subjects in and out to get a periodic, uh, periodic temperature of student performance in these various subject areas. And it uses a larger variety of formats than uh, we have under No Child Left Behind because the burden of testing is reduced and you can be more creative in using performance assessments and other ways to measure what students know and can do. Um, and NAEP uh, still serves as an important touchstone for judging the quality of education in the U.S. Even though these uh, reduced testing requirements are in place, we still use NAEP essentially to decide as researchers how well accountability policies are working uh, and how comparable state testing systems have been in the past. So with these two uh, comparisons in front of us, I want to suggest a few points about um, the, how we should proceed in thinking about testing under the reauthorization of No Child Left Behind. The main point I want to make to you today is that we should begin by talking about what the purposes are that we're going to use the information for, not begin by making people choose whether to test uh, annually uh, as a federal requirement or delegate that to the states. Picking the testing system first is putting the cart before the horse. We really should be debating uh, purposes. Uh, if you want to monitor equity, then for example, we need to make sure to represent all ethnic groups and all uh, student populations. If you want to measure growth, then we need to be sure that tests are administered annually. But first comes the purpose, then the shape of the testing program. Tests also signal what is valued. And so in thinking about what subjects to include in any testing program, we need to think about uh, what are the important characteristics of students that we want to measure. For example, it's a bit ironic that we are putting so much emphasis on the STEM fields, science, technology, education, and mathematics. And we see those as key to the productivity of the country and our international competitiveness, and they're being endorsed everywhere. But we don't test in science, technology, or engineering. We've ignored the st part of this, and we're only testing the mm. Uh, it's important in thinking about testing to consider both the benefits and the burdens. Um, and adding more testing means more classroom time. But it turns out that the main burden that classrooms are feeling now is not from the mandated testing, but it's from the additional test preparation that goes on uh, in classrooms in order to uh, make people comfortable that they're achieving the accountability goals of the system. 
And it's not from the federal mandate as much as it is from mandates layered at the federal, the state, and the local level. And if we were to do a better job of coordinating assessment, then there could still be required national testing without the huge burden that exists today. Uh, remember that the form and the length of the test depends on how it's going to be used. If the primary goal is for local formative uses that help teachers and schools improve how students are doing, you can have a much rig less rigorous testing regimen. If it's going to serve summative purposes, then you need um, a more intensive uh, set of tests. Many of the problems that people associate with testing now are actually not a function of the tests themselves, but they're a function of the accountability context in which we have placed them. And so if we change the accountability framework, that also would allow us to make modifications to the testing plans so that we get a consistent set system overall. I'd like to turn the microphone over to Dr. Hamilton, who's going to talk to you about accountability specifically. When we think about accountability, I think we've got sort of one broad overarching recommendation, which is that um, states should have the flexibility to design their own accountability and reporting provisions, um, but with guidelines that encourage making data public and accessible to all of the stakeholders who can benefit from it. And I want to um, just note that when we talk about accountability, I think the, the debates around this have often sort of framed accountability as this um, largely punitive thing where we attach rewards or sanctions to test scores and, and that's, that's what we mean by accountability. And I think we'd like to reframe that discussion um, and think about accountability as a mechanism for promoting improvement. Um, and you heard that to some degree in Brian's comments about how tests are used um, and you'll hear it in the recommendations that I make as well as, as the ones that, that John makes. So the first recommendation we have is that reporting requirements um, for, for states and districts should encourage them to report on multiple indicators of school success and not just test scores. The almost exclusive emphasis on uh, standardized achievement tests in current reporting systems sends a message to students, to teachers, to the public that these test scores are really the only thing that we expect schools to promote. Um, we know that schools actually promote a wide variety of other outcomes besides achievement. And even within the realm of academic achievement, uh, the kinds of tests that we have information on are limited. So um, information on how kids are doing in advanced courses or in subjects that are typically not tested like foreign languages, that can be important information for helping parents evaluate how well schools are doing. Um, it's critical for gauging the nation's progress toward ensuring that kids are graduating ready for college, careers, and citizenship. Um, but these kinds of things are missing from most current uh, reporting systems. Now, research doesn't tell us what type of reporting will work best, um, so we think that states and districts should be encouraged to experiment with different approaches to reporting, um, but including things like graduation rates, uh, rates of participation in college prep or AP courses, availability of extracurricular activities or special services, those kinds of things. Um, and they should be encouraged to um, think creatively about how do you make this information comprehensive and accurate, but also accessible to parents and other members of the public who, who need to consume it. Um, and this is, this is a tricky thing. Uh, no one's really gotten this completely right yet. So, so it's an area that's ripe for experimentation. 
expanding reporting systems in this way, um, you know, not only can improve traditional accountability-related decision-making, um, but it can also have benefits for school choice by giving parents and students a more comprehensive set of information to consider when choosing a school. Second, um, one of the most important things to consider is the specific metrics are, that are used that are tied to decisions about accountability um, and designing them to prevent um, some of the gaming that we've seen under prior um, accountability regimes. So some of the undesirable outcomes that we've seen associated with um, NCLB, for example, um, are a direct result of the way that achievement is reported. One example is the emphasis on whether students are performing above or below a proficient cut score. Um, we know from research that we and others have done that teachers often respond to this by focusing on the students who are, who are performing just <coughs> below that cut score, trying to bump them up above it. They sometimes call them the bubble kids. Um, and that's a perfectly rational response to the way that we're measuring school performance. Um, but teachers will tell us that this sometimes <coughs> results in less attention paid to the kids who are already above that cut score, um, as well as the kids who are so far below it that they don't feel like they can realistically um, hit that bar within the school year. Um, another example is the adequate yearly progress metric under No Child Left Behind, which emphasizes, for the most part, the school's status at one point in time, rather than considering how much growth occurs. Um, as a result of this, we've seen, uh, you know, problems with staff morale. Um, we've seen concerns that this system is sort of unfair to people who are teaching in more difficult circumstances like high poverty schools where kids are starting at a lower level. Um, and, and we're not recognizing the growth that educators might be um, promoting among those students. So, you know, the main point is that these metrics that are designed need to be subject to the same kinds of validity and reliability investigations that we typically do for the tests themselves. Um, and we need to think carefully about what decisions are tied to the metrics um, and what consequences are likely to result. If there are specific consequences tied to performance in an accountability system, they should be designed to promote a sense of continuous improvement um, and to directly address the underlying causes of the, of the low performance. Um, one of the things research suggests is that having consequences that directly influence what schools do is more likely to promote growth than consequences that are simply, um, you know, punitive. Um, moreover, perceptions among families and educators that accountability systems are unfair or inappropriate um, can sometimes stem from the sense that it's all about rewarding and punishing and not about helping us get better. Um, so it's important to, to directly tie consequences to efforts to promote school improvement. It's also important to ensure that any consequences are designed in a way that recognizes local contextual conditions, um, rather than imposing a, a common model across all schools and districts across the country. You know, one example is a requirement to restructure your staff and, and hire new teachers may not work in certain kinds of labor markets. Um, and this suggests that consequences should be um, influenced by local decision making and shouldn't be mandated um, at the federal level. The accountability under No Child Left Behind has focused mainly on measuring the performance of districts and schools. Um, but more recently, there's been a lot of work done to develop teacher evaluation systems. Um, and this is in recognition of, of a large body of research that suggests that teachers um, exert a large effect on student achievement, um, and that even within the same school, we see pretty vast differences in teachers' uh, contributions to student learning. Um, because of these differences, opportunities for students to have access to high-quality instruction aren't equity, equitably distributed either between schools or, or within schools. 
Um, although there have been a lot of concerns raised about how these evaluation systems have been used, um, there are some examples of thoughtfully designed systems that use multiple measures, typically including some measure of value-added or student achievement growth, combined with a direct measure of teachers' practices, typically done via classroom observation, um, often using input from teachers' peers or uh, from stakeholders like student or parent surveys. Um, each of these measures by itself has, you know, raises concerns about validity and reliability, but together um, they can provide teachers with good information to help them identify strengths and weaknesses, figure out where they need to get better, um, and they can provide uh, principals and other supervisors with information to help them guide um, the advice they give teachers on what professional development to pursue and how they can improve their performance in the classroom. Um, however, attaching high stakes to these measures is probably not warranted. Um, and as with the school level consequences, um, these decisions need to take into account local contextual factors. And so, um, again, mandating some specific set of consequences at the federal level um, probably doesn't make sense. And then the final point um, is that uh, Legislation should continue to promote uh, efforts for states and districts to improve their data systems um, while recognizing concerns about privacy and data security. Stakeholder groups ranging from district and school leaders to parents to researchers all can benefit from having access to high quality data. So for instance, much of what we know now about the importance of individual teachers was only possible because of these longitudinal data systems that states have put together and our ability to track students over time and link them to their teachers. A lot of what we know about what kinds of uh, curriculum programs work, again, is because we have the data to be able to test that out. Similarly, state and district leaders um, can benefit from having you know, easily accessible, frequently updated data on how their kids are doing and how their teachers are doing. The previous ESEA legislation really led to a lot of development and work around developing longitudinal data systems by states. Um, and so we would argue that those efforts should continue and, and states should be encouraged to improve on what they've already done. Um, there are legitimate security and privacy concerns. I think every week we hear about a new um, major data breach somewhere. Um, but we don't think that that should derail efforts to promote better data collection, analysis, and reporting at the state and local levels. And with that, I will turn it over to John. I'm going to expand quite a bit on what Laura had to say, especially with respect to her last bullet and the one right before that, about building on what we've learned in uh, the past couple decades, uh, using information that we have now because of earlier versions of, of ESEA, of, because of the NCLB. One of the things we have learned is that people really matter a lot. It's the staff at a school, in particular the teachers, but teachers in part are as good as they are because of the support they have from the top, the, the principals. That if we want to improve education, we can get the biggest bang for our buck. Um, we can get the most traction by improving the staff who are teaching our kids. And the data systems we've built up to now have been really good at identifying who, which teachers, in some cases, for the teachers that teach tested subjects and tested grades, which teachers do the best job raising the achievement of the kids in their classes, which schools seem to be doing the best job raising the achievement of, of the students. But these data systems aren't so good on the, 
on the why and the how. What is it that a particular teacher is doing that is improving her or his uh, student's chance of, of having a good life outcome? And so one of the places we think there's a lot of opportunity to build on what's happened over the past couple decades is to uh, take the longitudinal data systems that we've built that include student test scores and think of data systems that include these multiple measure evaluation systems. If we know what the teachers are doing in the classroom, we're going to know a lot more about which te what teaching practices seem to raise the kids' performance and what teaching practices don't help quite as much. One of the primary places we get this information is from the observations of the principals. We understand which principals are doing best by the observations of the principal supervisors. And we also get a lot of information from other stakeholders, in particular the people that observe the teacher day in and day out, the students. If we can ask in a systematic way, we've made a lot of progress in this, ask which teachers have the best control of the classroom, cognitively challenge their students the most. The students are able to tell us this. So once we've collected this information, we need to link it to the training, the support that we're going to give to our teachers. There are uh, advances that are being made in this um, to take uh, these measures of teacher practice, measures that come from student surveys, that come from principal observations, and directly tie them into a prescription for individualized professional development. Now, professional development, as it's currently thought about, bringing every teacher in the class or, or in the school or maybe every teacher in the district into a, a workshop for a day to teach them all the same thing, doesn't have a very good track record. It hasn't been shown to to raise student performance. But if we can do for teachers what we're now learning to do for students, differentiate instruction, blend ways to deliver information to the teachers from personal interactions with coaches to electronic interactions with uh, videos and interactive simulation, teaching simulations, there's opportunities here that have yet to be tried, yet to be tested. And the goal here is not to carve out each teacher and keep them separate with a separate uh, professional development curriculum, but we need to make sure we're raising them all to a shared level of excellence and a shared language so in the school they can continue to support each other. Of course, if we're going to do these new practices to raise teacher performance, we're going to need to provide school leaders with a lot of support. They need training in how to, uh, to raise teachers' performance. In a world that's rapidly changing in terms of what our students are going to do when they get out of school, in terms of the technology we have for teaching and for developing teachers and school leaders, we're only going to learn what works for all of those uh, uh, objectives if we collect information about it. So just as we've been collecting 
test score information on students and put it into a longitudinal data system. We need to collect information not only about what teachers are doing, but also what schools and districts are doing for teachers to help them improve their practice. What individualized professional development did a teacher, was a teacher asked to complete? Did they complete it? And without that information, we're never going to be able to close that loop and see what is working. So the, there's a lot of examples in this in other sectors. The Toyota production system in making cars, innovative uh, continuous quality improvement. Healthcare systems are bringing that information to bear on how you improve medical practice. So it's time that these ideas were rolled in to uh, authorizing legislation for uh, secondary, elementary and secondary education. Now, how do you do this in a policy level? Do you um, mandate specific activities? We think that the best way to do this, and evidence shows that the best way to do this, is to provide incentives for states and even for districts to innovate. Let them compete for resources to implement new ideas. But do it with accountability and do it with some fixed targets in mind. We think the fixed target of individualized professional development and enhanced record keeping on that development is the only way we're going to leave the trail of breadcrumbs we need about what's been going on in the education system so those that follow can not make the same mistakes we've been making in the past, can learn which of the many things that are tried are the best bets for our children in the future. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.